Well, welcome. Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Andy's out this week, so I'll be doing the announcements. I have none. So, <laughs> no, you can find them in your bulletin, so please look there. But I'll just make a note. One is that we will not have the children's choir practice today. We'll not be there today. Um, but we will be having a fellowship lunch. So join us right after the service, fellowship hall. If you didn't bring anything, that's fine, because I bought brought a boatload of chicken, grilled and fried. So you could at least eat that. Some folks brought some sides. I know a lot of people are out for Memorial Day and traveling, be in prayer for them. Uh, but for those of us who are able to be here, come join us for fellowship and uh, enjoy the meal after the service. If you notice here, I put uh, a scripture verse from Second Chronicles 7.14 on the front side of your uh, worship folder. This is Memorial Day weekend, and most of you know we remember those that have died giving their life for our freedom. God instrumentally used many men and women to serve and pay a great sacrifice for us to uh, be able to freely speak in this country and to, to live in the prosperity that is provided for it is a great time to remember and I hope you have a good time uh, most of you will be off tomorrow for Memorial Day that you'll remember the goodness of God in granting people that would make great sacrifices for one another and um, and we certainly do appreciate that the sad news as I thought about it too is that the next coming month the month of June I thought maybe you might be better prepared as a church, particularly in these days, as there seems to be an assault on God and the prosperity that he has provided, and particularly through the, through the work of his people. Uh, next month has been designated Pride Month by our culture and country, and it isn't a pride in the taking the appreciation for what God has done for us, but in rebellion against him. And I'll just say it just like that. I'm thankful that some of it has been suppressed in recent days because it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to flourishing. It leads to failure. And so we give people hope and help and with great compassion. We don't want people to experience the wrath of God revealed upon them in the expressions that they give. T turning God's gracious gift of the rainbow, that's the bow of his wrath that's hung in the sky to remind us that he's not going to judge us in the way that uh, the earth was judged in, in Noah's day. And that's what it should be reminded of, not our rebellion against him. Because there will come a greater day of judgment, a day of great fire, when his wrath is fully revealed. It's being expressed now in God permitting a lot of wickedness, a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of self-interest. You see, all of that comes from the heart of Satan. It's, it's not some sort of mystical, macabre be, being. It's anything that is a lie, anything that is not true, anything that is false comes from Satan, the father of it. It doesn't come from God. 
and it doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to flourishing. And so I stand in, in great concern about uh, these kinds of things and the direction, but ultimately it's a call to examine my own heart, to recognize what degree of rebellion I might be against my holy God who I love, who I desire to certainly be Lord of my life, Lord of uh, the church, and Lord, Lord of the culture and the country in which I live. This passage here is something that's always intrigued me. It's Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Here it is within the dedication of Solomon's temple and God's promise to his people, particularly in their event, if, if, they, would, if they would humble themselves. It does have a wider application. You can find similar concept in the book of Jonah. When Jonah was then forced to go forward and preach that judgment is coming, the people of Nineveh, by God's grace, said, you know, I wonder if we humble ourselves. I wonder if we pray that God might forgive us and heal our land. And if you know anything about the book of Jonah, you know God did that. You know why? Because he's a good and gracious God. And he will forgive you. He will heal your land. He will give you hope. He will give you the refuge that you need from his wrath and the incredible joy and pleasure that he has offered forevermore. And so here is a call then to this people and in God's promise, certainly applicable to pagan nations, how much more applicable to those who love Christ. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, it's on the front cover. Let's try this. Reading this together so that we think about it together, and then we're going to go and pray. And I'll give you a moment to pray silently, to humble yourself before God, to prepare yourself to hear his message for you. So on the front, let's read this together. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's humble ourselves before God. I'll give you a moment privately and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come to you now. We're thankful for the revelation that you have given to us, your very word spoken, recorded, received by us even this day. I pray, Father, that indeed you will call many by your name, regenerate our hearts. May they be humbled truly before you. I pray that our prayers will be constant, 
that we'll be praying always and often. May our life and lifestyle be that which is in constant communication with you. What a great privilege it is to come before your throne of grace. We recognize it is only made possible through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has made us holy before you, not standing in our righteousness, but in his, imputed and given to us. And therefore, shatter any prideful thoughts we have about ourselves. And cause us, Lord, to see your mercy and your grace your love, your forgiveness, so abundantly granted to us. We pray for those that don't recognize that truth, even now, that demonstrate it in their rebellious actions against you. May our hearts be filled with compassion, Lord. And may we also have courage and conviction to, to say the truth, even if it costs us much. Because the truth is that which will set them free and us free. May we be always about seeking your face. Recognizing your presence with us. That we cannot hide from your presence. And so may we not hide evil in our own hearts. You know our hearts. And so we confess our evil may we constantly be confessing, recognizing you are constantly forgiving. May we be reminded of your great faithfulness and truly in a practical way continue to cause us to be more conformed into the image of Christ, to turn away from our anger and our angst, anxiety, our wicked ways, Lord. And ultimately, may we have great joy in the freeness that we have before you without the chains of sin holding us down, freed in Christ, forgiven in him. And yes, I pray that you'll continue by your grace to suppress evil in our land, in our day, and we're ever looking forward to that city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down, in which we will live in a perfect and holy land, praising your name in the fullness of joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Our call to worship is found in Psalm 71, which will lead us into our first hymn this morning, written by Isaac Watts. And uh, had this psalm in mind, so we'll read our call to worship. Psalm 71, forsake me not when my strength is spent. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the commands to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O oh Lord, are my hope, my trust, O oh Lord, from my youth. 
Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I will still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, be not, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You, have, <clears throat> you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will always praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will, praise, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. Let's take our hymn books and let's stand and turn to number 41, which is a beautiful hymn by Isaac Watts. Look at verse 2. It says, Eternally, Eternal are thy mercies, Lord. Eternal truth attends thy word. Thy praise shall sound from shore to shore till suns shall rise and set no more. Let's be part of that praise that is being sounded this morning from shore to shore and sing number 41 from all that dwell below the skies.
sing holy, holy, holy. Good morning. This morning we'll be reading from the eighth chapter of the book of Acts, which you can find in your Pew Bible on page 916. Again, that's page 916 in your Pew Bible. What we have in this chapter first is the introduction of Saul, who subsequently becomes the Apostle Paul. And in a few chapters, the following his conversion, the 
narrative of the book of Acts will feature the work of God through him for the rest of the book. But we, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Uh, this is Paul when he was young as Saul and persecuting the church. And it's uh, significant to note, I think, that the disciples and apostles had conducted their mission work simply in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, Judea, up to this point. It took persecution for the church to actually begin its first mission outside of Jerusalem and Judea, which was to the neighboring region of Samaria. And in Samaria, uh, God blessed the preaching of Philip, and there was a magician by the name of Simon who was converted, uh, at least in terms of outward profession. And uh, following Philip's preaching there, he went back to Jerusalem and reported to the apostles that the Lord had blessed his preaching with apparent success. So Peter and John were sent out to verify uh, what had happened in Samaria, because of course the Jews and the Samaritans were people who had a great deal of animosity towards each other. You'll remember from Pastor Wayne's preaching of the Gospel of John, or your own reading of the Gospel of John, that when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well, she said to him, uh, how is it that you being a Jew speak to me, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Uh, there was a great deal of ill feeling between the Jews and Samaritans. And so, God did uh, something special here when Peter and John came out. Uh, the Samaritans had not received the Holy Spirit in a way that was uh, visibly evident. And with the preaching and laying on of hands that Peter and John did, then that occurred. And Simon, uh, the magician, saw that, and apparently he thought that Peter and John were simply greater magicians than he was. And so, as a magician might seek to purchase uh, a spell or formula from another magician, he tried to purchase the uh, power of laying on of hands to give people the Holy Spirit from uh, Peter and John. And that brought a sharp rebuke from Peter. Uh, now, uh, John MacArthur believes that Simon, uh, who is often referred to as Simon Magus, uh, did not truly repent. He was concerned just with consequences. Uh, and I would tend to agree with that. 
uh, Simon Magus, according to church fathers, later went on to become one of the founders of Gnosticism, which was perhaps the first Christian heresy, a combination of Christianity and uh, paganism that was a problem for the early church for, for several centuries. Uh, so it, it seems that it's Simon never really was truly converted, but simply was making an, an external profession and didn't really understand what Christianity was about. That briefly is what we'll be reading about. <clears throat> so now, let us hear the word of the Lord, the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. And Saul approved of his execution, referring to Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously worked magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had been only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray to me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thank you. 
Now let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, what could we ever give to you in return for your greatest gift, your own dear Son? He is our peace and salvation, our Redeemer, our substitute. He stooped low to raise us up, uh, was born like us, that we might become like him, the united deity and humanity, the creator becoming created, so that one day we might shed our sinful flesh and be remade in his likeness. He worked out a perfect righteousness which was given to us so that we can draw near to you. When we cannot rise to him, he draws close and lifts us up to himself. He entered into holy war with Satan, defeating our enemy, winning our battle, and purchasing our eternal place with you. O Lord God, these are tidings of great joy, and we often live without joy in our salvation. We find great joy in your good gifts without lifting our hearts to worship you, uh, the giver of all good things. Uh, our hearts stray daily. Our attention and admiration are easily uh, bought for moments of pleasure and escape. We are restless worshipers of ourselves, fearful of talking about you and appearing foolish, committed to our own agendas and unwilling to go wherever you would send us, captivated by our own little kingdoms instead of gratefully serving in yours. No wonder we are easily shaken when our eyes are always on ourselves and the fragile things in which we hope. O oh God, have mercy on us, though we desire to please you we are weak and sinful, unable to stand in obedience, and left you list, lift us up. Forgive us for the sin that remains in us. Though it frightens and troubles us, you've defeated it completely, giving us perfect peace in Christ. Thank you that we're forever united to him. His obedience is our very own, and you delight. your delight in him is always bathing us with your fatherly pleasure. Enlarge our hearts to celebrate this good news of great joy and we are barely able to grasp the enormity, uh, excuse me, for we are barely able to grasp the enormity of our salvation. Settle our hope and peace in the love of Christ and make his throne the pleasure ground of our souls. Help us to love those around us, drawing them into your family by caring and speaking of your greatness in wise and loving ways, always ready to share the, the great news and eager to explain the hope that is in us. Help us to sing of your goodness loudly in our souls and joyfully when we are together with hearts that are undone by your love and kindness to us. So continue with us now. Grant that the preaching of the word would be with power. Draw near to us and help us and forgive us for all of our sins. For Jesus' sake, in his matchless name we pray, amen.
Let's take our hymn books once more and stand, and let's turn to number 122. We'll sing another Isaac Watts hymn, O God, our help in ages past. Psalm 79.4 says, We must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord. 122. and 32 higher ground I am pressed on toward the goal for which God has called me heavenward Philippians 3:14 
Amber and Church. It's good to be back with you. It was out last week. I want a special thanks to Paul Warren for stepping in. He did a great job and I appreciate that much. It's great to have a church that can continue on in faithfulness. This morning I'm going to look at Hebrews 7 where we left off really a second part of our message about the characteristics of our mediator, Jesus Christ, typified by this person, Melchizedek. I was listening to a selection of a sermon, I guess, from one of my favorite preachers. There's a lot of them, I guess, but uh, contemporary one, Steve Lawson. And uh, he said, he made a statement that was interesting to me, so I went to look it up, but I found a tweet that he had of all things. Um, I don't use that much, but I, I found a, a quote that, that referenced kind of what he was talking about, and he was talking about a, a, what makes a great sermon. And he said in this message, this string here, the mark of a great sermon is not saying what a great sermon, nor what a great preacher, but what a great God. And I think that was well communicated. Someone within that string responded and said, a high compliment a preacher can receive is, you caused me to worship God. And I want to assure you that is our intent. Right? I can't make that happen, but that's our intent. That's our desire. I think it's the desire of what this preacher of Hebrews is doing. And if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and I said from the beginning, this essentially is a first century sermon. Not everybody agrees with me. Some people are wrong. <laughs> that's just the way I see it, and that's the way I've communicated about it. I actually think it is an exemplar of the Apostle Paul, the type of sermon certainly he would have preached. I do think he did preach it, and it was recorded by Luke in the format that we have, and it has those earmarks, but I won't bore you with all that. That's just my perspective. It certainly sounds like a sermon. Doctrinal statements are made, great truths are made, and then throughout, these great warnings are given to the congregation, who happens to be a congregation of Hebrews, Jews, who came to Jesus Christ, who confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, but they were in the day in the danger zone, the danger of what? Of walking away. There is salvation nowhere else but through Jesus Christ. And so he passionately preaches about it. And really what you need to know is what this preacher wants us to know, and that is the grandeur of Jesus Christ. We would use a term like the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's the essential theme here. How glorious he is and that's the point of reading through and hearing the preaching of this sermon is simply to 
get a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ, to, to worship him. And whatever level we have apprehended Jesus Christ in our own thinking or knowledge, we haven't come close. There's more. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that continually in your life that you would grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, that you would increasingly come to, to know the glory of Christ. It can't be said enough. In fact, you remember how he opens up, and I'll, I'll refer back to, again to chapter 1 before we get here. He said, God had spoken long ago many, many ways to our fathers and the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, the whole world that you know. He, that is Jesus Christ, and this is the call to worship him, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We image forth attributes of God, but this is God incarnate. That's what he's saying. He upholds, beyond that, the universe by the word of his power. You know why everything isn't falling apart, even at this moment? It's because of Jesus Christ. He didn't just create it and give it some rules to go by. Those rules are obeying his voice. It is Jesus Christ who is engaged in every moment of life. You're not aware of it. You don't see it. You'd be reminded of it. And that's his preaching here. And beyond that, and specifically, why he took on human flesh and came to dwell among us was to redeem a people for his name. And that's what he would go on to say here. He made purification for our sin. In 1.3. And when he finished, when he completed that, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior than angels. And he'll go on to say how Christ is superior to absolutely everything. What, whatever you think is good, whatever you think is great, whatever you think is glorious, it doesn't compare to this one. That is his point. In fact, the heavenly beings, these creatures called angels who are perfect, holy, and righteous. They will fall down and worship this one. None of the angels are said what he would say here to the son in verse 8 of chapter 1. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We're going to emphasize that forever part in just a minute. He, he'll get to that in chapter 7, and we'll, we'll direct, but remember where it's rooted here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You see a lot of injustice, things that are not upright, things that are not true. But you understand, this one has sat down on the throne. It is just a matter of time for this to be fully revealed. And that's what we're explaining now and calling you then to exalt in Jesus Christ right now. I don't care what everybody else is doing. They will kiss the sun, Psalm 2, and so should we. Recognize him as Lord. The heavens, he would say, is the, his handiwork. This is the work of what he does. They will perish, but he will remain. 
They're going to all wear out like a garment. We understand that perfectly, don't we? They're going to be changed. The world will be changed. He will remove evil, the devil, sin. It's going to be changed in that sense. It's going to be gone. But you know what's going to be the same? Jesus Christ. He's not going to change. He's the same. And beyond that, his years will never come to an end, verse 12. That's Jesus Christ. He is grand. He is glorious. He is supreme. Preacher reminds us here in Hebrews of this great one, Jesus Christ, who is indeed supreme. And beyond anything, if you can ever grasp this fact, that this supreme one who doesn't change, who creates all, who upholds all, who then redeems the people for his name, he's not done then. He continues to uphold his people, you, if you're in Christ. He upholds you by the word of his power, by his faithfulness. And this is his role that this preacher here explains more than anyone else in the entire Bible about this specific work of Jesus Christ that didn't just occur on Calvary, but continues even now. And might I say, this will continue for eternity. That is how you will not lose your salvation because he ever lives to make intercession for you. That forever God means quite a bit, doesn't it? This preacher in Hebrews, he's, he's just going off a simple passage, I would say, the way I analyze this text from Psalm 110.4, where David reaches back a thousand years prior to this obscure priest who comes along in Genesis 14. We're given this historical account who's described there at that time, and David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes the purpose of that priest to come to Abraham. It was simply this, to typify Jesus Christ, to point out the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He was an illustration, if you will, of Jesus Christ. We need to know Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, he recognizes that his audience may not fully make that connection. You know how he knows? Because they want to go back to Judaism. And beloved, if you go back to your secular ideas, your, your culture, your, your other religious system, or whatever you have, anything other than Christ, if you go to that, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to fall. You haven't really seen Jesus Christ. And so he's going to lift up Jesus Christ and exalt the glory of Christ through this example, Melchizedek, who serves as an illustration. And after he gives this warning in chapter 6, then he talks, he closes again to, to return to this one, Melchizedek, who you should not be lazy dull, as you said. Instead, really think about what this truth is. Because who is Jesus Christ? Verse 19 of chapter 6. 
He is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Beloved, you need one. A hope. A hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain. Remember, he's sitting down on the majesty on high. In the inner curtain that they were aware of, there, there, there was this ark, the ark of the covenant, which is said to be the throne of God. Symbolized that, and on the top was a seat. You know what the seat was called? It's called the mercy seat. You know who sat on it? Nobody. God sat on it. Because that's where mercy is going to come from. And you know what's on the side of that? Angels. And what are they responding to? Holy, holy, holy. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping God for what he has done. There's nothing greater than that. Any great sporting event, any great uh, accomplishment in your life, I don't want to diminish any of that, but it compares nothing to this. And particularly in the work that he's done, the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ in atoning for our sins. He's gone. He's sitting down. An anchor of hope if you're in Christ in heaven. What, 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 what a steadfast and sure anchor in that it will never break away. It will never fail. It will never change. It is forever. And he's gone then as a forerunner, if you will, <coughs> taking a nautical analogy of, of someone who would take forward that, that anchor to secure the boat. In this case, the illustration is, is us in our life in Christ, and Christ secured it in the heavenly. And then he becomes a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. After, in the sense that he typifies Jesus Christ, there are characteristics that we learn from Melchizedek and his life that portray this and picture this beauty of Jesus Christ and who he is. Our objective is to exalt in the glory of this one. This mediator. Recognize his worth, his supremacy. To get a clear vision of who he is. By practical application, where whatever circumstance you might find yourself here, they're in tempted to go back to Judaism, which was essentially the, the cultural thinking of the day, of the community in which they live. And that would certainly apply to us as well. But how you resolve that, you'll do so by recognizing the, and appreciating who Christ is, recognizing his worth and his worthiness, and hence it results in worship. Remember John chapter 6, Jesus preaching and gave them that hard language in using in an illustrative way, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. He's not talking literalistically. He's saying everything needs to be about me, about Jesus Christ. And everybody left. That wasn't a message they could swallow. They wanted to hear something else that would tickle their ears, something that would be more sensible to, I don't know, make them on the throne, to give them their due, their self-autonomy, to give them their self-autonomy and their due would simply bring about great judgment because that's where they're at. He says to Simon Peter in his last few inner circle that happened to still be standing there, 
And Jesus said, gave them an opportunity too. You ready to go? And I want to say to you too, not in a harsh way, if you don't want Christ, leave. Be true. Don't be a Simon Magnus, as we read about earlier, who just, just wants to be a part of the, of the Christian experience so that they can assuage some of their guilt. Maybe they can get a little bit of profit and benefit out of it. That, that's the wrong motive. You haven't seen the Holy One of God. Because if you have, you would respond like Peter does when Peter is challenged in that way. And his answer is my answer. Even though, again, I, I don't say that I have uh, seen Christ in the perfection of who he is, but the very little glimpse that I have of him, you know what I say? When I'm prone to wander, and Lord, I feel it, here's it. Lord, to whom shall we go? What a what a, what a great response. He, Jesus says, go ahead. You want to go too? He said, well, Lord, where are we going to go? Y- you have the words of eternal life. It's only you. We have then believed. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See how Christ is exalted? And that's what all we're trying to do here today. Lift him up. <coughs> and the beauty this message from this preacher in Hebrews is that this Holy One of God is not just one who is transcendent above the heavens, but he's with his people. He beckons us to come in his presence before the throne of grace because he's always there interceding on our behalf. You know, there's never a time you can't come to him in prayer and he's going to shut the door and say, well, you just didn't come the right way, so I I don't have time for you. That You may experience that with people from time to time, and people are busy, but Jesus is God. He can hear everyone at every moment, at every time, at any time. This is the ministry that's typified by Melchizedek. Let's read it in the context of Hebrews, and I'll look at chapter 7 and pick up where we left off last time. Just extol on some of the characteristics, and I may not get through what I intended today as far as the content is concerned, but I hope you get the message of the glory of Christ, because that's really my objective. To increase your joy and appreciation of him. So let's look at this order of Melchizedek as explained, and we'll pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 7. It is speaking of Jesus. It says, For it's witness of him that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, speaking of Christ, this one was made priest by an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus 
the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, well, they were many in number because they were prevented by death in continuing in office. <coughs> but he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. For, he, for since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. Like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and, and then for the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would grant us a vision of the glory of Christ even this day. May we grow in that grace and knowledge, not to grasp information, but to exalt in worship of Jesus Christ. Maybe he be more glorious than anything else we see or face or fear in this life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This section in Hebrews, as I mentioned, summarizes really the, some of the aspects of Christ's mediatorial work. He's said to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And last week we were able to get through at least three of these characteristics, those characteristics which Melchizedek typified or portrayed or illustrated which are fulfilled and actually true in every aspect of Jesus Christ. One is he, and I've kind of alluded to it just reading here, I hope you catch it, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he is sovereign. He's sovereign over all. And that makes him superior over everything else. And he's self-sufficient. He doesn't have any need like we might have a need. He doesn't need. He's not lacking for want. He's self-sufficient in and of himself. He's a glorious high priest. It isn't that Jesus is lonely <coughs> and wants to have somebody with him in heaven. He's not lonely. He doesn't need anything. So why would he even garner to take us to manifest his glory so that we would see the glory of Christ in his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his love, his steadfastness, and you could go on and on, his peace, his patience. Well, who is this God? Who is this high priest taking on human flesh and is after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's look at verse 17 and 
I just want to draw your attention to this word forever. You're a priest forever, which Melchizedek typifies. That is, Jesus Christ is an everlasting priest. This is unique. Kind of already alluded to it, and I think you can recognize it. This is distinctive of Jesus Christ. So what other priest would you go to? Because guess who is forever? What, what priest is forever? None. This one. That's it. That's the point. How did he illustrate that? If you remember earlier in the chapter, chapter 7, verse 3, speaking of Melchizedek, it says, and this is done for illustrative purposes, to demonstrate and point out this everlasting nature of Jesus Christ. He says, Melchizedek doesn't have father or mother or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, and look at the word here, resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Melchizedek doesn't literally fulfill any of that. It's just, as we talked about that before, they just didn't have any records of him, of where he came from, where he's going. So from their perspective, he, he doesn't have mother, he doesn't have father, he doesn't have any kind of genealogy chart that they keep up with, which they would have been meticulous on that. He doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. They don't know where he came from, where he who went. In other words, he's typifying or resembling that person that is Jesus Christ. And the point is, that is a unique priest. There, there's no other mediator like this one who is everlasting, who is God. The superiority of Christ's mediatorial work as priest then continues forever. And by contrast, here in context, they understood this very clear with the system that they had, this Levitical priesthood. It had a beginning. And you can find that in Numbers chapter 8 and explain some of those details. I'll just give you the highlight. It, it was males typically at age 25 when they could start the priesthood. So they weren't priests forever. They had a beginning. They, they might have interned for a while, for five years, starting at age 20, but they're officially 25. And that ran till age 50, and then it was over. There was some selection of priests called the high priest, who once they were appointed to that office, it was essentially a high priest for life. But guess what? They died. They all died. This that priest had an end, and that is the difference that he's making, that Christ continues forever. He is everlasting. And this isn't a minor thing. It is because he has, uh, he, he, because he has the ability not just to, to live forever, but he has an indestructible life, as is pointed out, in verse 16, he becomes a priest, it says, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily sin, hence that's the genealogy which the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood was all based on, but by, by, by the power of an indestructible life. That's why it continues forever. 
because he can't be destroyed. And I think that's a, an important point. I've made note of that before, but I think we ought to look at that again because the point of recognizing that and knowing that in a deeper way is then knowing that if you, beloved, are then in Jesus Christ, in that sense, you too will have an indestructible life. That's what your eternal security is based on. And might I say this, the opposite. If you go to any other mediator, I don't how, care how good they are, how well it looks, that is destruction. It's the pathway that leads to death and destruction. I'll highlight a few passages, and you can either turn or just listen. One is the preaching of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. I think I mentioned this verse a while back, but it's worth repeating. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter is, is preaching about Jesus Christ. This is post-resurrection. We call this Pentecost. He's preaching the gospel to the people. And he said that God raised him up, verse 24 of Acts chapter 2, loosening the pains of death. And here's the phrase that I want to get that parallels with Hebrews 7.16 about the indestructible life. It was not possible for him to be held by it. By what? Death. Why wasn't death able to hang on to Jesus Christ? Because he's forever. Because he's indestructible is the way to think about it. It's not possible for him to be held by death. Taking on, it, and what a, what, a, what a unique and a brilliant way to do it, of course, is done by sovereign God. This is the only way possible then for him to take on our sin and die and then rise again because there was no doubt about the resurrection. It, it was always understood. Because he is God. No beginning and no end. There isn't going to be a termination of who he is. Peter would be quoting here from Psalm 16. He says, David says this in verse 25 of Acts 2. I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand and that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh shall also dwell in hope. That is what this concept of the indestructible life of Jesus Christ, the impossibility for him to die, it will bring about for those who recognize it, rejoicing, that's worship, exalting in him, to have great steadfastness in your own life. That's the idea of not being shaken to have joy, and to dwell in hope. <laughs> the missing ingredient often in, in human life, if you've met a lot of people, I'm sure you've met many that are without hope, that are shaken, that are in periods of time of great sorrow. You know what to resolve that? Look to Christ. 
Look to Christ, the, the one who is indestructible, if you will. Why? Verse 27 of Acts 2 in his preaching, he quotes this, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Because he is the Holy One, as Peter would point out earlier, remember, where are you going to go? You are, we know that you're the Holy One of God. Here he is, the Holy One of God. That is, he's saying, you are God incarnate. You are the Holy One. Here's the parallel. And here you might want to turn to Romans chapter 6. Paul is providing the doctrinal application, really, of this death of Christ and those who believe in him who are united to Christ, and you'll see the parallel of his indestructibility, of the fact that it's not possible for him not to rise from the dead. I hope I put enough negatives in that one. Or fashion right, if not, you can tell me later. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we'll start there. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Now, he's talking about baptism in the sense of immersion. That's all the word means. He's not talking about a ritual that represents the reality. He's talking, because this is all we can see, is a physical baptism of someone who confesses Christ as Lord. Here, in context, he's talking about our spiritual union with Christ. It's considered a baptism or immersion or the way Jesus said in John 6, eat my body, drink my blood. That's what he's getting to. We're, we're unified with Christ, immersed with him by faith. So, so what does this indestructible life of Christ do in a practical way for those that are united? As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The walk is your life and lifestyle. Everything is going to change in Christ. The old man is crucified, if you will. Who you were without Christ, it was crucified. It was then buried and then Raised, raised to walk in newness of life. And he'll explain this in a spiritual way in verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're united by faith. And as certain as Christ's death is, his resurrection is just as certain because he is forever. You're not. In and of yourself, you're not. But he is. And guess what? No one else is. This is the only one. This is why we call people to come to Christ. And it's a fact. It's a certainty. His resurrection is Absolute and certain. It couldn't have possibly happened otherwise. The Holy One will never see corruption. 
He must rise. And so for those that (coughs) are united by faith in Christ, it is impossible for you then not to be raised to be with Christ. And he'll go on and make this application also in, in how we live in this temporal world. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's a great concept of it. Enslaved means you have to do whatever you're, you're told. The, the change is that we're, we're now enslaved to Christ. We're in bondage to him, a benevolent master. No longer to destruction, but attached to life and life forever. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Here it is, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so here is the challenge, beloved. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God How? In Christ Jesus. It doesn't come outside of Christ Jesus. It is only inside of Christ Jesus. And this idea of a consideration is simply the idea of, of, of looking at the chart and seeing what is written. And here it is the chart that you're looking at is the scripture text. This is what it says. And by faith is a call to believe that. Now, there may be times in your life in which you just don't feel that way. Totally get that. Totally understand it. That's why you to be reminded of it and to focus and think on Jesus Christ. To consider yourself then and remember dead to sin. You, you have a you, you want to, quote-unquote, clean up your life and lifestyle. We were talking on Wednesday about living a Godward life. You want to do that? It, it isn't just about, and I think it's helpful, to, to put in some parameters and gateways and some habits of, of not engaging in sinful practices, that, things that might lead you astray and temptation and so forth. And all of that's good. But you know what the primary thing is? Look to Christ. Behold him. Think on his glory. Recognize what he has done for you. That you are no longer enslaved by the bondage of sin. You don't have to get angry and sin. You can be righteously angered at sin, but you don't need to be hostile and angry. And when you find yourself, and that's just an example, didn't want to criticize all the angry people here today. (laughs) Whatever it is, look to Christ. Look to Christ who is 
risen from the dead. I don't really have time to, to, to go through what I would like to say about the perfection that Christ performs, so I think I'm going to trail off with this just in a couple more passages that I have time for. So it might be worth looking, and this is just located in a very familiar passage that talks about the resurrection of Christ. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, and I invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're admonished by Paul to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. So what is that going to mean for us? What does this mean for us that we have a forever high priest, one who is indestructible, one in whom we trust and believe and have our life in, one in which we are united with him? With a glorious thing through, and I'm not going to go through the whole chapter here, but it's a glorious chapter dealing with the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He begins that way, and he talks about the gospel ultimately is that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again. Those are the three things to remember. And if you're united with Christ, you'll die to your sin. They'll be fully atoned for, buried away, no guilt, no condemnation. No one's going to dig back up the corpse because it's risen in Christ to newness of life. What a beautiful picture. What a great thing to keep in your mind as you walk through a dark and difficult time in the sinful world. But here is the, the beauty of the finality of where it's going to lead to is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It talks about Christ who's been raised from the dead and specifically just drop down to verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Don't allow Satan to lie to you and tell you anything different. The fact is Christ has, has risen. And as I demonstrated it has to have happened. He is the Holy One of God. It couldn't have happened otherwise. The fact is, Christ has risen from the dead. So, so what does that mean then? That's, that's good, good for him? How about me? Well, it is good for him, but it's also good for you. Notice here, he is then said to be the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And, and again, it, I'm just overwhelmed by the careful attention the apostle gives to those who have died. We, we don't use this terminology in our day, and we don't have to. That's fine. We talk about people who have passed away, and occasionally we'll say died. But we seldom ever say fallen asleep. Maybe it's a concept that at least should be revived in our mind. Because the whole point of those that have died and that they're in Christ they're, 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 they're not destroyed. They're going to rise again. And for preaching a funeral, this is one of my favorite sections to go to. And my wife, I guess she's over fixing the food here a little bit, so she can't jump on me for saying this because she thinks I scare little children when I say this. So if I scare you, I apologize. Because I love going to Graveside. That's my favorite place. Because I'll just read a little bit of 1 Corinthians 15. Because it gives great hope 
to talk about those that are beloved in Christ and recognizing, you know what? They're just sleeping. They're going to rise. And can I tell you this? It's guaranteed. There's a lot of things and a lot of guarantees out there. Most of them fail, don't they? But I'll tell you one that's not going to fail is that one. And as difficult as it might be in setting aside one of our beloved, and it is difficult. I had to bury my own father. God gave me strength to not shed a single tear during the presentation of the sermon as well as the graveside. Prior to that, I was broke down like a baby. But I had a message to give and hope. And it is hope. We sorrow, but not like those without hope. You know what? Everyone in that grave that is not in Christ, that's a picture of their life is just going to be absolutely destroyed. And that should bring about great sorrow. Maybe some courage and conviction for us to warn about the wrath to come. And even better, the hope that's in Christ. You have the, you have the greatest message that ever can be proclaimed. There's life in Christ. Because if you notice our text, it says that Christ is what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We, we're not used to that terminology either. Agriculturally in that day, the idea of the first fruits was, you know, they work really hard to plant a big crop and whatnot. And, man, it was great to see that fresh life come forward. The first fruit, the first gleaning if you've grown any little plant, and I know some of you have, even if you just do it in a little pot, isn't it really cool to see a fruit, vegetable, whatever it is, come off of that thing? That's the imagery there. That the Christ is the first fruits of those, which means what? There's more to follow. Because all that are in Christ will follow. And he'll say that. He says, hey, the bad news is that death does come. It came by one man. And, but on contrast to that, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you're in Christ, it is forever. It is indestructible. It is an indestructible life. He will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. So in the midst of your tear, you'll have great joy. to see the smiling face of God's providence and his provision, particularly in Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Each in his own order. It's going to take some time which God is, has no beginning and no end. It's not measured in that way. But from our perspective, it's time. And there's an order to these things. Christ first. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And this is why we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see him. We, we, we want this beautiful resurrection this glorious resurrection and what does it look like the end verse 24 
the end, when he, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after d- doing what? Destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. There are many people who think they have a lot of power, they have a lot of privilege, they have a lot of prestige. You know what it compares to in Jesus Christ? Nothing. I'm not suggesting that you minimize your responsibilities, your duties, and all that kind of thing, but humble yourself before this one. He is the sovereign Lord of all. And all rule, all authority, all power that you know has a problem. It's called sin. It is self-destructive, if you will. And you know how you know it for sure? Because all of that leads in death. But there is one who has overcome it. And that's Jesus Christ. And he must reign. He is Lord now, verse 25, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And guess what's the last one? Death, when he raises his sons and daughters to eternal life. Let us pray. Father, I pray that our hope and confidence in Jesus Christ would be increased. We cannot imagine why you would bother with us other than what you have said to the praise of the glory of your grace. And so we praise you. May we, may we respond in that way. May we also proclaim this grace to everyone we know. That death is indeed destroyed. That Christ is indeed risen. And that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I will give you a moment now where you're at to respond to this one, Jesus Christ, in any way that you felt led to do so. Take a moment and think on these things. If, if you're now prompted to confess him as Lord or confess your sin, either way. He's faithful and just to forgive you and hear. So don't confess to me, but to him. I'll give you a moment now. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to his name be amen and amen. Let's all stand and turn to 475 in our hymnals. Jesus is all the world to me. 475. For me to live is Christ. Philippians 1.21. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and deed. Father, we just pray this afternoon now as we go to the fellowship hall to partake of this food that you provided and the fellowship around the table that you would bless uh, the food and strengthen us with it now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.